few years ago. I was uh, with Melanie actually about 10 years ago. We were in Rome and we were on an uh, open-top bus tour of the city of Rome and we came across the, the Tiber and turned left and saw in front of us St. Peter's Square, isn't it? The, the big kind of area in front of uh, the Vatican. And so we got off the bus and as we approached, we realized that we couldn't go on to it because there was a, a fence there. Uh, and it turned out something was going on. And in the distance, about as far as I could see, if you have good eyesight, you could see much further. But as far as I could see, there was this individual coming out onto a stage or a platform, probably. And it was the Pope. And so I like to say that I've met the Pope. I'm not sure he would say he's met me, but I, as far as I'm concerned, 400 meters between us, practically friends. Years ago, I stood outside Old Trafford, and uh, it was back in the day when they didn't show up, the players didn't come in a bus, they would park in a car park and then walk across to the stadium. And David Beckham was walking across, and this was in the days when he wasn't famous, and I recognized him. He was one of our youth players. He just about started to break into the first team. And he walked across the, in front of the stadium. And I said, David. And he was chuffed to bits that I recognized him and got a photo taken. I don't know where it is. Completely lost it. But it would be stretching it to say that me and Bex are tight, you know? I mean, I've met him, but he wouldn't know who I am. And it's not as if we chat much. A few years ago, I was with Melanie at Gordon-Conwell Seminary at a gradu- my graduation there, and we walk, uh, walking along past the library, and this man walked past us, and I said, that's Chuck Colson. She said, oh, really? I said, yeah, and that's it. I mean, that's the connection that I've got with Chuck Colson. He's now with the Lord, but you know, at the time, I thought, that's pretty cool. He knew you know, Richard Nixon, and he was famous, and he wrote that book, and, you know, and I could keep going with, with all these kind of pseudo-encounters with famous people. I've never seen a royal... But I've seen football royalty, you know, and I've, I've seen uh, the Pope, and I've seen some other individuals. But do I know them? Could I claim to have a relationship with any of these people? If I did, it wouldn't take many questions for you to realize that I was just talking nonsense. Yeah, me and the Pope. Or me and David Beckham. Have you met? Yes. Have you spoken to him? Yes. Do you speak to him? No. Because when there's a relationship, then there's a conversation, right? If you know someone and there's an actual relationship, then you've kind of got their number in your phone and and you call them up and you can interact and they recognize your voice. But when you've just met someone or when when all you can do is say, I've been in the same vicinity as someone, it's a real stretch to claim a relationship. Now, we're in this series called Ears to Hear, and we're jumping forward in Luke's gospel. So far, we've thought about the two builders in Luke, what was that, seven, uh, six at the start of the series. Last week, we thought about the sower in Luke 8 with the four different types of soil. You don't need to, to kind of get the different parts of this series. Every week stands on its own. Today, we're jumping forward to Luke chapter 18. And in Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells a, a very simple little story, little parable, And he makes a point, and we're going to see it, and hopefully we're going to see that it isn't just an interesting story from 2,000 years ago, but it's actually relevant to us today. That's the beauty of when Jesus speaks, that what he says tends to cut through time and cut into our hearts and hopefully make a difference. And the story in Luke chapter 18 is actually two parables that Jesus tells back to back, 
And they're both about prayer. The second one we're going to look at next week. We're just going to look at the first one this week. And it tells us at the start why Jesus told the story, which is always helpful. We're not guessing. We, we can just read it and see. So verse 1, it says, He told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. So that's the goal of this story. And therefore, that's the goal of this message, that we ought always to pray and not lose heart. So let's look at the story. Jesus said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterwards he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continued coming. Simple story, right? Maybe a weird story. You might be scratching your head thinking, uh, hang on a second. What is he saying about God? What is he saying about prayer? Is, is Jesus saying that if we want to achieve things, we need to be the most annoying, nagging people possible? Is that really the point of the story? Because at first glimpse, it kind of looks like that, doesn't it? You know, if you're in school and you want to get, you know, get something, nag your teacher for it. If you're at work and you want a pay rise, just bug your boss. If, if the local council aren't fixing the pothole, keep writing them letters. Be the, as annoying as you can be. If your husband is awkward to live with, just be a pain. If your parents are unreasonable, just be difficult. Is that what Jesus is teaching? I kind of don't think so, and I'm not going to put any suggestions out there about how to treat church leadership. But is Jesus really saying that if you want to achieve something, your job is to be as annoying as possible? Please don't take that lesson. Some of us can do that naturally and easily. We don't need any encouragement. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. The story itself is kind of straightforward, isn't it? You can sort of picture it. Here's a judge in a city, and this woman keeps coming to him, and she's pleading for justice, and he doesn't care. He doesn't care about God. He doesn't care about people, doesn't care about her, doesn't care whether he gives justice or not. All he seems to care about is himself. And eventually, she wears him down. Now, if you look into sort of the cultural background here, it's interesting that probably it would have uh, not been the same story if it had been a man coming. Because if a man came, he would have got uh, a response because he would have been treated as having kind of some significance. Whereas this is a woman, a, a widow, a, a nobody in that society. And so the judge can quite appropriately in that society just completely ignore her. And she's not in contempt of court, she's just annoying and so it kind of fits in that culture that, that, that a woman would be able to keep on coming. And she doesn't get justice, so she comes again. And she doesn't get justice, so she comes again. And in the end, what the judge says in verse 5 is, um, Because she keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continued coming. Literally, what he says there is so that she will not give me a black eye. All right, now, I don't think he means literally she's going to you know, sock him in the face. I think what he means there is like, I'm going to lose face. I'm going to be humiliated. I'm going to be shamed. It's going to ruin my reputation. This is awkward. I've, I've got to protect myself. 
I'll give her justice. And so the story itself is, is, is kind of straightforward. It's fairly simple. And I suppose for, for most of us, we're sat here thinking, oh, well, you know, like what, what's the equivalent for us? We live in a, a country with a relatively fair judicial system with protocol and, you know, processes to go through. I suppose the closest thing that many of us might experience to this is a pothole that we're trying to get the council to fix. It's not big stuff. But just because it's not big stuff for us doesn't mean that this isn't a story that resonates with an awful lot of people in this world. There's an awful lot of people who live in systems where there are injustices and there's no way to get it taken care of. There's a lot of people who, when they go to the authorities, the police, the judiciary, whoever the authority may be, they go to people who are corrupt and self-serving. And the only way to get the help they need is to pay a bribe. It's a lot of countries like that. We should be thankful that we're not there or this is not like that. And so for a lot of people, just on any issue bribery is kind of the only option. And what do you do if you're a widow? What do you do if, if you've got nothing? We're living in a world where there are literally millions of people who are facing serious injustices and can do nothing about it. And this story would ring true for all of them. Plus the fact there is a whole load of places in the world where Christians would resonate with this widow. Where Christians would say, I can't get justice. I can't afford the bribe and I don't want to pay a bribe. Just because I'm a Christian, I'm on the receiving end of injustice. And it, it, it bugs me, it bothers me more than that. It, it hurts. I'm suffering in this. And so just because we're living kind of in an in a almost fake comfort zone of the West, let's not be um, aloof. Let's not be cold to the fact that for an awful lot of people, this is incredibly serious stuff that just hits close to home. And so, what's the point of the story? Is Jesus saying, be annoying? Actually, he's not, is he? The, the, the motivation for prayer here, it comes through in the next couple of verses. Verse 6, And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. Will not God give justice to his elect? Who cry to him day and night, will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. You see, this story isn't saying God is like that judge, and so therefore you've got to really get on his case. What he's saying is, in a human situation, in a hopeless situation, that's what it takes. And then maybe, eventually, that judge gradually might give some sort of justice. How much better is it for us? Because our God is not like that judge. If it's true of an unrighteous judge who neither fears God nor respects man, that he can be convinced to bring justice, then how much better is it for us? We have access to the God, the ultimate one, the, the one who sits on the throne, not just of a certain city, but of an entire cosmos. And think about the contrast. That judge was described as not fearing God nor respecting man. And when he spoke of himself, he stated it. I neither fear God nor, nor respect man, yet I will still. 
how much better is it for us that we've got a God who, think about it, fear God. What does that mean? If the judge feared God, if he was overwhelmed by the fact that the true God of the universe was over everything and he cares about justice and the Bible tells us repeatedly he cares about orphans and widows, the helpless. If his passion is for justice for people like this, then that unrighteous judge, if he were righteous, if he feared God, he would have given her justice. Therefore, obviously, the true God would give justice. Right? If, if, I can't say God fears God. That, that's kind of confusing. But, but if that judge has the right respect for God, then you, you get a positive outcome. What does that mean for the real God? It means he cares. It means that he values justice. It means that he values every person and every cause and every issue. He's not aloof, he's not distant, he's not self-concerned and self-focused. And we should be so, so thankful for that. We've got a God that we can come to and say, I've got a concern, and he's listening. His values are absolutely in line with God's because he's God, right? And the, the unjust judge, he, he had no respect for man or for humans. But what's the true God like? He respects, he values, he considers each human to be uniquely precious. It talks later on about his elect, those that, that are his, that, that, that he uh, counts as his own people, even without getting into all the kind of theological meanings and stuff of that. Just the fact that they are his people means that he knows them, he cares about them. He kn- Just think about it. when we come into the presence of God, he doesn't need somebody else to introduce us. <clears throat> Tim Jones, Your Honor. He doesn't need that. When Tim comes or Melanie comes or Vicky comes, when Andrew comes, when Mary comes, God, ah, delighted to see you. He knows us. He knows you. He knows you by name. He knows you with all your baggage, with all your issues, with all your sins, with all the, the stuff that makes you feel awkward. He knows you. He knows you with all the stuff that you've done wrong this week, with all the stuff you've done wrong uh, 60 years ago. He knows you and he delights to have you come into his presence. He's the exact opposite of this judge. And so if this judge would ultimately give a response to the widow, how much better is it for us? And so where's the motivation in this story? It's not that, 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 you know, we need to be annoying. The motivation is this. We can pray because God is good. His values are good, what he wants, what he desires, his view of justice. He's good. And he respects, loves, cherishes, values you. And so you can come into his presence anytime. Confident about any issue, confident that he is ready to hear you and that that if your prayer is in line with his will, he's absolutely on board. doesn't mean instant response, doesn't mean instant outcomes. There's a whole lot of things that we don't understand, like why does the Lord not answer my prayer this way or why is this taking so long or, or what's the deal here? But surely if he's good and he values you, then we can trust that he knows what he's doing and he's going to do the right thing, right? It's, it's kind of a, a simple logic. 
we can pray and we can keep on praying and we can confidently pray because God is good, not like that judge. And I suppose as we look at that, um, that, psalm, that psalm, that proverb, sorry, what, what I'm doing here, parable. I knew it begins with a P somewhere. But we look at the parable, we kind of go through this and go, okay, so what's the point then? Is it simply that, that God is good and, uh, you know, he's better than the judge? I mean, that's, that's true. I suppose there's another whole layer to this in this sense, that this woman was coming to the judge to get his attention, to, to, to draw his attention to her cause. Like, hey, my, this person who owes me money is not paying me money and I'm starving. Can you, I need justice. You know, whatever it was, she was trying to get his attention. How does attention work for us in prayer? Do we come to God and say, <clears throat> just trying to get your attention? I wonder if maybe actually when it comes to prayer, it may be the other way around. It may be that for for some of us, and we're going to consider why in just a moment, but for some of us, maybe for many of us, prayer is something that we've sort of let go of. Maybe it's something that in the past we we were fervent prayers, but maybe over time, for one reason or another, prayer has become less of a priority. Where's the attention? Who needs to get whose attention? I wonder if perhaps actually God wants to get our attention. Maybe it's not that we, we, we th- read this um, parable and come to God and say, you know, God, I'm really trying to get your attention. Maybe we read this parable and God says to us, with this parable, I'm trying to get yours. What, 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 what does that mean? Just very simply, if, if you look at your own life, if, if you're new to, to this whole kind of church thing and you're like, I, I don't even know who God is, that's, that's totally cool. We're glad you're here. Keep listening and, you know... It, Hopefully it will be relevant to you. But for those of us who, who trusted Jesus, who are part of the family, who, you know, we've trusted him as our savior and we, we can call God father. If there's that relationship in place, well, then it would make sense for us to be talking to him, wouldn't it? Otherwise, it's like me claiming to be close to David Beckham, but I never talk to him. It, it's bizarre for Christians to say, yeah, I'm in relationship with God, but we never talk to him. But it happens. And prayerlessness is, is a huge issue. It's a, a huge concern. It's a huge tendency that I think maybe all of us have. And so maybe actually this parable is like a, a fireworks display going off saying, Oi, people, please listen to this. God wants you to come to him. He wants to see your face. He longs to hear your voice. He wants to know what's concerning you. He wants you to be praying about the things that matter. And, and so I sort of pause and think about that before we go to the, the last little bit of this parable. And, it, and I kind of wonder if maybe it's just a good moment to flag that up and say, okay, what does it take for God to get our attention as a church? Because God is able to do that. I remember years ago hearing someone preaching from the prophets, and I've used the kind of uh, logic myself when preaching in the prophets, that, that these prophets, these speakers in the Old Testament, they were real attention seekers. They did bizarre things. They'd break pots and lie on their side and walk around naked and all sorts of stuff. But basically, what they were doing was trying to get the attention of God's people. 
And the logic seemed to be, as you kind of watch the prophets preaching, that if God's people don't respond to God's word, then he will try to get their attention another way. And just as that was true in the Old Testament, I think that's still true today. So maybe God, through this parable, is saying, hey, Trinity Chippenham, I want you to come to me. I want you to be praying. I want you to spend time in my presence, just pouring out your heart to me. And my plan A is that you respond to parable, Luke 18, 1 to 8. That's plan A. I want to get your attention. But if you don't listen to that, I can get your attention on Monday too, or Tuesday or Wednesday. I can get your attention through all sorts of things. And that kind of sobers me. That kind of almost not scares me, but it makes me stop and think, wow, I want to be someone who responds to the word of God rather than daring God to get my attention in other ways because he's very capable of that. The connection between God and his people is so important that he's not going to let us drift on and drift away in sort of a prayerless self-sufficiency. And so whether it's health or finance or war or whether it's something in society or something close to home or a car accident, whatever, God is able to work in our lives in a way that really wakes us up and brings us to our knees. And as a church, as a church, I would say, let's not make that necessary. Let's respond to God's word. Jesus said we ought always to pray and not to lose heart. And the first motivation that I see in this passage that is so overpowering is the contrast between the judge and and God. The judge was unrighteous, didn't fear God, didn't care about people. But the true God, the righteous God that we have, he's godly, which is a good thing. And he cares. He's good. He welcomes us into his presence. He wants us to come to him and to keep on coming to him. Now, if, if that was the whole parable, I would say that was, that was enough. That's worthy of us kind of just phew, chewing on that and letting that sink into our lives. But then there's this phrase at the end of verse 8. I wonder if you missed or spotted that I missed it. Verse 8, I tell you, he, this is God, will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless... When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Huh? What's that got to do with it? That just seems to be like a, a, an idea just jumping out of the blue, doesn't it? Like, okay, so now why is he talking about the return of Jesus? What's that got to do with this? Actually, it has everything to do with this. Because the, the, the thing that should motivate us to pray constantly and to not lose heart is that God is good and God is coming. And so when you go back into the previous chapter, chapter 17, remember the chapter breaks were added later. Luke was designed to just be kind of flowed through. It wasn't designed to stop every time you get to a big printed number. In the previous section, Jesus was asked, starting in verse 20, by the Pharisees, so by people that were antagonistic to him, they said, when is the kingdom of God coming? They were expecting this big, spectacular show from heaven where where Rome would be thrown off and and Israel would be exalted and all would be kind of put right in the world. They were sort of crying for justice, if you like, to get rid of these Roman overlords. And they're saying, when's the kingdom of God coming? Let's just look at Jesus' answer here. 
in verse 20, says the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. That's an intriguing answer. Some versions say it is within you, which isn't really a very helpful translation. Jesus is speaking to religious leaders that hated him. He's not going to tell them that the kingdom of God is inside them because it wasn't. What he's saying is you're looking for some spectacular coming from heaven, this kind of coming kingdom. I'm stood right here in your midst, folks. It's me. Here's the the coming of the kingdom of God in Luke 17. It's Jesus. But then he carries on from that point. And he speaks to his disciples. And he says, the days are coming. And so at that time, the kingdom of God was Jesus. But then he says, look, the days are coming. And he anticipates. He says, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man. And you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there or look here. Don't go out or follow them. (coughs) Excuse me. He says, don't go out or follow them. As the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. And so he's saying, look, right now the kingdom of God is not showy. It's just me right here. But the days are coming when my coming, when the Son of Man's return is so blazingly obvious that you won't need anyone to tell you about it because everybody will see it. It's going to be spectacular in the future. Verse 25, but first the Son of Man, Jesus, must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. See, he keeps going, kind of present, future, present, future. He's saying, look, there's going to be a spectacular coming of Christ into this world, but right now I'm going to suffer, I'm going to be rejected. Then, verse 26, just as it was in the days of Noah, looking a long way back, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. So what's he saying? As you go on through this section, he's saying, look, when I come again in the future, when the kingdom of God comes and gets established, it's going to be big, it's going to be spectacular, but for normal people, they're just going to be kind of going about their business. It's just, boom, it's going to come all of a sudden. Now, what that means for us is this. We're living today... As if today and tomorrow and the day after are normal and predictable. And the Bible warns us not to do that. It tells us that one of the things that should motivate us to pray and to not give up praying is that one of these days is going to be a completely different day. One of these days there's going to be an absolutely massive transformation of what we consider to be normal because Jesus is coming back again. And the question, remember the question Jesus asks in 18 verse 8, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Why wouldn't he? Well, because people have stopped praying. But that's the logic, right? That people have not kept on praying and have lost heart and have gone, can't be bothered. And Jesus is giving this incredible lecture on the return and the, the, the kingdom and all that kind of stuff. But the question that he's left with is kind of uncertain. Is there going to be any faith left? Are people going to be praying? Now, the, the passage goes on, and we're not going to get into all the detail of it. 
Um, but let me just read you a couple of bits. He, he kind of builds it up and builds it up. He talks about the days of Noah, the days of Lot. Then he comes down uh, to say in verse 32, remember Lot's wife. We'll come back to that. Verse 33, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken. Thanks, Han. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women uh, grinding kind of the, the mill together. One will be taken, the other left. And they said to him, where, Lord? He said, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. I mean, it's kind of heavy stuff, isn't it? Now, we're not going to get into the detail of, do you want to be one of those taken or left? It depends what passage you read. And so don't, don't worry about the detail here, but just recognize the weightiness of what he's saying. The weightiness is, look, this is serious business. In that moment, there's going to be a dividing. There's going to be a separating. There's going to be a, a, those who are with Christ and those who are not. And that's consistently what is taught through Jesus' teaching when he talks about his return in the future. And then you come to chapter 18, verse 1, and it begins with the word and. Notice that it's still part of the same passage. And he told them a parable that they should continue continue to pray or always pray and not lose heart. And so there's a city and there's a judge. And on the story goes. And we've got to recognize that this story is not simply a contrast between how good God is compared to how bad the judge is. It's also part of this whole flow of this section where Jesus is saying the coming of the kingdom is going to transform everything. The question is, will people still be faithfully praying? Will people's hearts be pointed in my direction? Will people be leaning towards me? Will there still be that kind of fervency? Or will the whole, will everything have just kind of gone flat? I just want us to notice why it might go flat. Because obviously we're living closer to the return of Christ than when they heard it. Right, that's, that's kind of obvious. So, so we're, we're kind of in the danger zone of becoming prayerless. Right? We're kind of the, the people, if you like, that potentially Jesus was asking the question about. And so what might cause us to become prayerless? I suppose there's a whole host of possible reasons. Uh, persecution, maybe. Uh, in other passages, that's certainly one of the things that threatens people's faith and trust in God. He's not talking about that here. I suppose unanswered prayer in light of the parable. The, uh, if, if you've ever experienced that, where you pray for something and you pray again and you pray again and you don't get the answer that seems so obviously the will of God, it can be so disheartening, so discouraging when you pray for a loved one to, to trust in Jesus and decades later they still don't. Or you pray for someone to be healed and then they die instead of being healed. I totally understand why unanswered prayer could lead us to lose heart. But that's not what he's talking about here. Sin can certainly get in the way of us praying. We, we tend to not want to communicate with God when there's a problem going on in our lives. That's certainly an issue. But that's not what he's talking about here. Now if you look just one more time in chapter 17. Just an interesting thing to notice here in the days of the son of man when jesus returns verse 26 it will be just as it was in the days of noah now what was going on in the days of noah 
In the days of Noah, the, the world had become so filled with evil that God regretted what was going on deeply and, and decided, I've got to deal with this. And so he rescued Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives, so eight humans, and he wiped out everyone else with a flood because of the evil. And the Genesis gives us some indications of how evil the world was at that point. But what does Jesus say here was going on in the days of Noah? They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage. Nothing wrong with that. That's just normal life, isn't it? And then he talks about the days of Lot. You read the story of Lot in Genesis 19. Lot settled near to a town called Sodom and then he kind of drifted and ended up in Sodom and had to be rescued from Sodom. And even the name Sodom we use for certain kinds of gross behavior. And so there was all this kind of gross sin in Sodom. Sodomy, Sodomite, all that kind of stuff. And Lot got rescued from that. But what does Jesus say here? Just as it was in the days of Lot, verse 28, They were committing sodomy? No. He says they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. There's nothing wrong with any of that, is there? Here's what I think we we, want to spot before we leave this passage. There are two big reasons that are very, very uh, tempting, if you like. Two, Two reasons why it would be very easy for every one of us to go from being prayers to being prayerless. The first is that we drift into the world's view of God and we start to think of God being like the unjust judge. That's what the world thinks of God, right? That he's selfish, that he's distant, that he's uninterested, that he doesn't care, that you've got to twist his arm and put money in the offering and maybe you know, he'll answer your prayer if you're good enough. And so the world thinks of God as being just like the unjust judge and we as Christians can drift so easily into that. And start thinking of God as distant and disinterested. And he answers the prayers of the super saints. But he doesn't care about me. We can fall into the wrong view of God. And we can say that he's good. But we can lose our grip on the fact that he's good. Just like in Psalm 73. Psalm of Asaph who was a worship leader. You know, Imagine Asaph with his guitar. right? And he's there uh, singing and declaring in front of the congregation of Israel. Surely God is good to Israel. And everyone's going amen. Then he says but as for me. My feet had almost slipped. His eyes had gone from God onto others. And he started to drift. And you see we can easily lose sight of God's goodness. That's the first potential reason for prayerlessness but the second one is what we're reading here in the days of Noah and in the days of Lot it's not persecution it's not suffering it's not the worst of times it is the comfort of the ordinary times that's a very real danger for us that we can just get caught up in life as it is you know what I mean You go to bed, you get up, you go to work, you come home, you eat, you sleep, you watch television. Everything's just kind of normal. Everything's just kind of safe. There's no real struggles, no real difficulties, maybe a little bit here, a little bit there, the odd health issue. But basically, we can be fairly self-sufficient and we can fall into a worldly way of thinking that I've got life handled. And that was exactly what was going on in Noah's day. 
They felt like they knew what they were doing and they could do life. Therefore, they didn't need God. That's what was going on in Sodom. It wasn't all pure evil. They were eating and sleeping and buying and selling and planting and building. They were doing normal life and they were doing it quite happily, thank you. We don't need God's help. And that's a danger for us. In some ways, I think persecution would drive us to our knees, but comfort can so easily keep us from ever praying. When there's money in the bank and the paycheck is coming and our health is relatively good and if it isn't, there's always medication for it and the, you know, the doctors can help us and, and it's so easy to just kind of drift into a prayerless state because life is kind of normal. We've got to watch that. We've got to make sure that we don't, as a church, as families, as individuals, fall into the trap of thinking that we've got life handled. That what was yesterday will be today, will be tomorrow, and we can predict with a certain degree of, of certainty that, you know, pick a date in the future, yet that's going to be a Wednesday, and I know what happens on Wednesdays. And pick another date, yet I know what's going to, yep, Christmas is on Tuesday, I know what happens at Christmas. And we can so easily fall into that sense that time is just ticking on, and it will always be the same. And so Luke 18, verse 8 rings out and says, when the Son of Man comes, will everyone just be like they were in the days of Noah and the days of Lot, just thinking, yeah, I know what life holds. I know how to do life. Or will there still be some who have faith in God? Will there still be some who have faith in Jesus? And how does that faith manifest? Luke 18, verse 7, his elect, those who are really his, Cry to him day and night. Faith and prayer and love and worship and all these things, they all kind of go together. And you can't say that I love God and I worship God and I've got faith in God, but I never pray. Makes no sense. If we're his people, then we need to pray. We need to keep praying. We need to pray day and night. We need to come into his presence. Pray for one another. Pray for our town. Pray for the people around that don't know him. Pray for the injustices of our society. Pray for injustices on the other side of the world. Pray for the persecuted church. There's plenty of stuff we can be praying for. Plenty of stuff that should be moving us. But the question is, do we see that God is good? And do we remember that God is coming? Because if we remember that God is good, then we will be confident to come into his presence. And if we remember that at any moment, normal will be a thing of the past because Jesus is going to step back into history. At any moment, then that's going to change our every moments. It's going to change our normal days, even if we live and die without ever seeing that day. That's what Jesus wants us to hear. That's why he, he gives us this parable to, to drive us to our knees, to bring us into his throne room because he loves us and he wants to hear from us. He's delighted when we come and, and that's, that's the invitation. But it's also kind of stern, isn't it? It's more than just an invitation, it's a warning. It's a wake-up call that we should be constantly in prayer and we shouldn't lose heart because God is good and because Jesus is coming.